Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. In this great American experiment. We'll be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Ida rocks the whole East Coast. And who and what is left in Afghanistan? This is Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. More than seven inches of rain in just a few hours. The Western Hemisphere's busiest subway system shut down. Hey, welcome back, guys, to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We're on every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Please like and subscribe. And we've got a lot for you today. Vince, what do we have on the menu? Well, taking a look at a big storm this week, Jason Nichols, we've got the uh, we've got Hurricane Ida, starts as Hurricane Ida, rocking the Gulf states and then working its way up the eastern seaboard. Uh, and leading to a bunch of unusual weather events, especially in the Northeast, that most most of the time we just don't see. I mean, from you know, in our area, we saw a tornado touchdown in Anne Arundel County, um, you know, right there near Annapolis. You know, moving on up, you see flooding in places like Philadelphia and New York City. I just want to show you a a video here um, that kind of captures um, a little bit of the devastation that we saw as a result of Ida, and then get your reaction to all of it. Absolutely. I'm very, very worried about what's happening out on the roads. I want to urge everyone, get in quickly. Do not stay out on the roads. It's dangerous. Uh, we're seeing a kind of rainfall we almost never see, this kind of speed with which the rain has come. Uh, everyone's got to get to safety. Do not be out on the roads if you have any choice. Rec periods of record in New York City go back 153 years. We've never seen anything like this. Uh, this was Fourth Avenue that I used to live in this uh, part of Brooklyn. Uh, just This is the bottom of Park Slope. Uh, I used to take the subway line in to do this show every morning at 2, 3 in the morning. I never saw anything like this at all. This is the road that the New York City Marathon runs down. Uh, each November. Absolutely different than everything that had been projected. And I think this is sobering to see what's happening to, with weather in general. It's become so unpredictable, so violent, so fast. Uh, we just have to, all of us, help each other, but really also learn the lesson, never take a chance with any weather like this. Yeah. The three inches of rain was recorded in Central Park within an hour, shattering a record set just last week. It's going to be a hell of a lot worse. This has been the pattern more and more the last few years. And with Ida, we've seen something, a speed that I don't think we've seen ever before with a hurricane. For the first time in recorded history, the National Weather Service issuing a flash flood emergency for all five boroughs of New York City. More than seven inches of rain in just a few hours. The Western Hemisphere's busiest subway system shut down. Waterfalls pouring down station stairs, trains pulling into fine platforms submerged. People wading through waist-high water. 
All right, Jason, tough images as uh, Hurricane Ida worked its way up the country. Absolutely. Um, so the only thing that I'll say is that, you know, one of the things that you said was that this was, and, and, and I think we heard a little bit in the video that this was unprecedented. Mm. But the thing is that this is becoming far too common. Um, so the number of floods and heavy rains has quadrupled since 1980. Uh, in the next 30 years, scientists estimate that uh, New Jersey, which actually had 25 deaths from this. So we also have to talk about the people who lost their lives. Uh, New Jersey had 25, I believe New York had 16. So this was not a storm that just destroyed property. It's one that actually uh, took lives. Right. And in the next 30 years in New Jersey, um, we, they can expect about 11% more precipitation. Um, and I'll read a couple other things. According to data from about 230 studies, 68% uh, of extreme weather events are, were made more likely or more severe by human-caused climate change. Uh, 2020 was the warmest year on record. And one of the things that I think is good is that there are solutions to these things. We just can't stop denying the science. Even government-funded institutions like NASA have made it clear that climate change is an issue. And we're at a point where we can make this less severe. Of course, we need the cooperation of nations like India and China. But one of the things we can do as the United States is, is start to lead. And one solution that I've been reading about are nature-based solutions um, because there's a lot of deforestation and that can trap a lot of the carbon. So we need to uh, make sure that we stop deforesting uh, a lot of our, our forests. You know, it harms wildlife in addition to that. Um, and they're saying that nature-based solutions to climate change only get about 3% of the funding. So that needs to change. Um, and fighting climate change by restoring forests can create about six times as many new jobs as oil and as oil and gas. So a lot of people are worried about what this will do to our economy, what will happen with jobs. Mm. And I think if we actually take climate change seriously, and I understand that there's some, you know, there are some scientists who are skeptics, but largely the scientific community agrees that climate change is an issue, man-made climate change is an issue, that we are getting uh, warmer, that seas are rising, uh, and that can have real serious effects, particularly for poor people. Um, you know, it's, it's been shown that this hurts poor people even more, and some of this actually is because of our government response. I think we make a lot of tepid responses to climate change and to some of these extreme weather events. Uh, one of the things that happened after Sandy you know, in the New York, New Jersey area, they started to make certain changes to weatherize things. Um, but there were other parts of the infrastructure that weren't fixed. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, again, goes into the fact that, you know, we need to pass infrastructure um, at the federal level. Um, we need to make sure that we get the proper investment in infrastructure. And we also, at the state level, need to start making real changes, not these little tic-tac changes, because this is becoming more and more common. These records are being set more and more often than they were before. And if we keep sitting here and playing this game, this, this partisan game about 
you know, is climate change real? Is this just the left wing going crazy? Is it, you know, all of this, you know, it, it, this is what the majority of the scientific community is saying. We can reverse some of this. We can slow some of this. And if we just start taking it seriously and also going through serious mitigation processes, we can actually change this. So um, that's kind of my response to the whole thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. rest in peace to the people. And I'm so sorry for the people who lost their, their family members. As a matter of fact, I was reading that the record that got set in Newark, New Jersey, and in New York, uh, I think it was 3.2 inches of rain fell within an hour. You know, I mean, that's, that's insane. Mm. You know, 8.4 inches in Newark, New Jersey. I mean, literally it's a lot. just like dumping water on, you know, these places and making it so that you know, the country, you know, a major part of the country is flooded. And then we're, we're economically paralyzed because a lot of things happen in New York. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we really need to start taking this seriously uh, and listening to the majority of the scientific community. Yeah, I think, I think the key is to figure out uh, to what extent we have control over this, though. That's, I think that's the critical point. So, um, you know, in the debate around the climate, uh, it's often said that, of course, that humans play a role in the temperatures of the planet and whatever sort of outcomes come from temperatures rising as a result of that. But establishing what percentage of a role that humans play is important. Uh, it's also important to remember that you know, humans are a part of nature. So we should at least you know, think about it in that way, uh, that we're not separate and distinct. We're completely a part of this whole process. Uh, and if we are playing a role, we should, you know, we should at least acknowledge it within the context of, you know, this entire environment, we're a part of it um, for sure. You know, a guy, I know, you, I know you just pulled up some data, so I'm going to pull up uh, some as well. Um, this is, comes from Stephen Coonan. He is a uh, former uh, top scientist in the Obama administration. Um, he served as the uh, undersecretary for science in the Obama Energy Department. And here are some of the facts that he's compiled on climate change. He's a guy, by the way, who does say, that humans have um, some impact on the climate, but he thinks that is vastly overstated. Um, so what's this? What's this guy's name? His name's Stephen Coonan. His name that's that's S T E V E N. Stephen Coonan. Okay. He served as an undersecretary for science in the Obama Energy Department. Here, are just a couple of details that he's laid out. Okay. One, he says the warmest temperatures in the United States have not risen. The warmest temperatures in the United States. So that's not the average, but the warmest, he says, have not risen in the United States in the past 50 years. That's according to the U.S. government's climate science special report. He further says humans have had no detectable impact on hurricanes over the past century. He's referencing the 2014 National Climate Assessment saying that humans have had no detectable impact on hurricanes over the past century. Um, and that would be consistent with, you know, you know, sometimes when conservatives look out the window and they see the snow and they say, hey, I can use some of that global warming right now, sort of as a mockery to the left. Like, wait, where's the global warming? Well, what is the average response to that? Hey, don't, you know, don't get it twisted. Weather isn't climate. Well, mm -hmm. then when we see a, a big storm come, and we like like we just saw with Hurricane Ida, a lot of statements are made about, oh, this is climate change. This is the product of climate change. But if we're being fair here, you talk you can't talk about individual weather events this way, because to, to suggest that weather is 
and in, indicative of climate would go against those people who argue, no, it doesn't. It's not indicative broadly of climate. So real, real question. Sure. Uh, real quick question. Uh, Stephen Coonan, I'm just looking him up. Yep. Is this uh, the guy who, uh, at New York University, a professor in the department. I have theoretical physicist. Um, let me see. I'm not sure if he's a theoretical physicist or not. He may be. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. If, if that's under, what you're finding, undersecretary great. of energy and science under under Barack Obama. Sure. Yes. Undersecretary for science. Yep. Okay. And he's a theoretical science. He's a theoretical physicist. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about weather events. Is he not allowed to? No, I didn't say he wasn't allowed to. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out his specialty here. But uh, continue. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was that's just okay. wondering who he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. Um, th that sounds right. If, if that's what you googled and found, because we can always trust Google. I think. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, well, that the, was his uh, Wikipedia page, but yeah. That, okay, even better. <laughs> um, Let's see. Since the middle of the 20th century, he says the number of significant tornadoes hasn't changed much at all, but the strongest storms have become less frequent, actually. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In other words, like if you start to look down the data, um, it is possible to cherry pick outcomes, right? So you can, so if you're looking at moisture events, I know you cited moisture, you can say, well, look at this increase over this time frame. Uh, and all of that strikes me as interesting and compelling points to talk about. I guess, I guess fundamentally, Jason, um, my point on this is and continues to be that we, have some, we should have some sense of the, the percentage impact that humans have on anything. We should be careful to have enough hubris to suggest we can broadly control the weather or the climate. Um, and we should also acknowledge, I think, two other points. There's a, a lot of phoniness, I think, in the climate debate. Michael Moore created an entire documentary about this, actually, mm -hmm. released um, about two years ago, where he talked about you know, some of these organizations that claim to be representing the interests of the climate are actually fronts for, um, for, for all sorts of companies. It's like a giant corrupt deal that has nothing to do with changing the climate at all. He's obviously a believer in anthropogenic uh, climate change and thinks that humans need to change things dramatically. And the other is like, when we talk about the climate, like at what cost too, that's the other point of this. It's like, is it worth destroying the American economy over for, for slight changes, if it's even achievable, for slight changes in global temperatures? Um, is that worth, is that trade-off worth it? Um, and I think those are, I think that's a good question. And you mentioned China and India, the idea that we're going to bring China to heel on on uh, climate standards of any kind, um, it seems impossible actually. And so what we're gonna do is we'll kneecap American workers in the interest. And in the meantime, China will advance like crazy. Um, I don't like that deal, not, not yeah, a fan I, of that. Again, so um, we can, we can so number one, I, I, I've looked this up and, you know, just just a quick Google again, trusting Google, just like <laughs> I trust Google about as much as I trust Stephen Coonan. But, um, you know, it says here, uh, according to the U.S. National Climate Change Assessment. Um, so, again, coming from the federal government, not just right. an individual, but it says increases in greenhouse gases and decrease in air pollution have uh, have contributed to increases in Atlantic hurricane activity since 1970. So 
they're saying that increase in greenhouse gases, which would be human controlled, uh, does actually lead to um, lead to hurricanes and extreme weather events. The other thing is the, the data that I cited before, 230 studies that were uh, compiled said 68% of weather, extreme weather events were made more likely or more severe by human climate change. Another thing that I cited um, that there are jobs that will be created by number one, the fight for cl against climate change. Number two, as you know, Bernie Sanders would say, you know, the the creation of green jobs and and a lot of those uh, things in the energy sector. Mm -hmm. um, once we start to green our economy, that there will be an incredible amount of jobs because just as we um, as an economy, we shifted into from an agrarian economy uh, into an industrial one. This is, you know, the new change for the 21st century. Um, I think it can be argued and that lots of jobs are going to be created that way. Um, I think it's just and, it, and I don't think anyone is saying that, you know, some of these industries like the oil and gas industry, that that is going to completely disappear. I think it's that they have to shift the way uh, other industries have shifted. Now, in terms of uh, China and India, of course, China is the, is the number one polluter in, in the world. Um, I think that there are things that other industrialized nations can do. Um, and this goes back to kind of the Trump doctrine in, in this regard, is there are ways to compel China to do mm -hmm. things, particularly if you have the backing of the European nations and other developed nations. Trump tried to go it alone. And in many ways, you know, you could argue that in some cases it hurt farmers, it hurt others. But, you know, certainly uh, the, the idea that China is somehow bulletproof, economically bulletproof, and that we can't compel them when they export their goods to the United States, to France, to the UK. And if we, you know, those nations all get together and say, look, this is what you have to do. Um, I think we can certainly change some of China's policy. Are they gonna, you know, change completely? Absolutely not. And this is one of the areas, and I won't go on too much of a tangent, but this is one of the areas where the United States has, has definitely failed is that China in the UN one of the smart things that China has done is gone into the developing world and not started wars, but what they've done is loan them money at no interest. But what does that do, particularly on the cotton, on the African continent? It gets them votes in the UN. <laughs> so when you pass a resolution, they're looking at Nigeria and at Chad and at uh, you know Mauritania or wherever, and they're looking down at them like, Remember that $20 billion we gave you with no interest that we know we're never going to get back? Yeah, vote with us. So I think, you know, there are things that the United States should have been doing in order to block that so that China doesn't have that kind of influence. Uh, it might be a little too late right now. But I think that there are a lot of things that, you know, uh, you know, I think the overwhelming majority of the scientific community, um, Steve Coonan, not withstanding, uh, agree. And, you know, a lot of government agencies, as I pointed out, agree that, you know, man-made climate change is an issue. Now, I agree where we will agree. And again, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but where we will agree, I think, is that the extent to which 
a lot of this can be mitigated at this point, you know, we don't know. Um, that we don't know. But what we can do, and I think we'll agree on this, is that we can prepare our infrastructure to withstand uh, major storms and flooding and a lot of the things that we saw in Philadelphia and in uh, New York uh, and in New Jersey. We can do that. And, and of course, in, in Louisiana, we can actually yeah. weatherize our economy. And that is something that we need in, a, in an infrastructure bill that needs to be robust. It can't be $500 billion. It needs to be bigger. Um, and I think that there needs to be bipartisan agreement, particularly after what we've seen um, across the country in, in both the South and in the Northeast. We've got to do this for our people's sake. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated issue. Sometimes I wonder whether or not we should even be in the business of paying flood insurance. Like the US taxpayer pays flood insurance for all these right. flood zones. Like. Maybe there shouldn't be coastal property, <laughs> like, or if there's going to be, like, maybe you should have an insurance policy to cover your entire house on the coast. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, the right likes to give uh, a Barack Obama crap for this, and I think he deserves it. It's like he just built this like ridiculous place on Martha's Vineyard at sea level. Like, he's not that concerned <laughs> about about sea rise. Um, and I do think like the whole like idea that like climate change is an existential threat that if we don't critically handle it within the next ten years, game set match. And the timeline on that keeps moving. It's been moving for half a century. If you go back and look at headline after headline after headline, doomsday predictions um, have failed routinely. Yeah, well, uh, I'd say the, the longer, I think the, the issue is the longer we wait, the worse it gets. Not necessarily that the world is going to end in 12 years. I know that that's kind of the idea that AOC was, was giving um, mm -hmm. and people were like, you know, I think it was a little bit of an exaggeration, a little bit, um, I, I assume that, that what buildings she was suggesting, are gonna... I assume that what she was suggesting was we've only got 12 years left to really grapple with this. And right. if we don't, that's... the whole, the whole thing's over. Exactly. That's and... the point where we'll get to a point where, you know, our mitigation, uh, attempts aren't going to really make a difference. Like, it's, can I ask done. you then, can I, can I ask you a question? I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic. I just think that like, if we really knew we had a 12 year time frame to save the planet, mm -hmm. like, wouldn't that justify war? Like, wouldn't it? Like for real, like wouldn't if it was only 12 years left to save things, like shouldn't we be bombing Chinese coal fields if it's if it's an existential crisis? Uh, no, I, number one, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think the purpose, number one, is to save lives, uh, not to take them. So getting into wars with other superpowers is not going to save lives. That's actually going to cause a whole lot more death. So um, but the whole I planet would die right in this scenario, I would guess. Well, like, again, I, and I think. As I said, I think that that is a little bit of exaggeration. I think what it's saying is that we're going to get more extreme weather events. More people are, you know, are going to die like the 25 people who died in New Jersey. It's going to be a bigger number. It's going to be 50 people next time or, you know, in 12 years. Or we're going to lose more lives and people are going to lose more of their livelihoods and more of their homes and more of their jobs. Um, so I think it's saying that if we don't pay the cost now, the cost is going to be greater. So think of it kind of like driving your car, right? You hear something rattling, you know, in your car. And yep. I can say, honestly, you know, this is kind of going on. I need to, I need to do my brakes. Um, but, you know, during the pandemic, I wasn't driving that much. But, you know, not that we're out of the pandemic. But when you're driving and you hear your car rattling, you know what I mean? You can sit there and ignore it. Or you could, you could take it in, you could fix it, 
it'll be, you know, it'll be like 700 bucks. Yeah, that hurts. Mm. But if your engine locks up and your car falls apart and then the mechanic comes out, he's wiping his hands and he's saying, yeah, this is going to be 4,500 bucks, you know? Yep. The problems um, compound. The problems compound. So I think that's, that's the argument um, for the, for the 12 year time frame. I don't think the world is going to explode in 12 years. We're just going to reach a point of no return. Just like, you know, my daughter who is banging at the door right now, trying to get in, <laughs> you know, on this, in on this conversation. I don't um, blame her. It's a good conversation. <laughs> it, it is. It is. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's jump to something else here. We've got, uh, speaking of the uh, weather events, although of course we talk about the, you know, the sad news associated with, there's some other some bizarre news you see this video of a guy who um was smoking something he was blowing plumes out uh, but he's floating on it looks like an inflatable raft in the streets of new york city smoking like he doesn't have a care in the world and and watch this video not only do you see him doing all of this you can hear the thunder in the background going off listen to this Is that the way to ride out a storm, Jason Nichols? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. When life hands you lemons, you know, <laughs> you make lemonade. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, I don't know how safe that was, but, you know, uh, I think he he made the best of the situation. Um, uh-huh. He had, uh, as our, one of our producers would say, he probably had a doobie and, uh, you know, it was making the best of the situation. I'm sure it looked like, you know, who knows, maybe his apartment yeah. was underwater. Maybe he was doing it for the gram, you know, you know, yeah. one of these, like sometimes these guys, like you remember back in 2012 when Sandy rolled up the, uh, the coast in DC, we got some of the weather first before, you know, New Jersey got slammed in that area. Yeah. Um, but as, as it was passing by DC, one of the news crews was out in the streets of DC and a jogger came running out in a horse's head. You remember this? And he's like, he's like running by wearing one of these like Halloween horse heads. Like he's like running through the storm. And so, you know, the camera just pans and follows the guy running in the horse head. <laughs> and you think like, you know, it's just probably some, you know, kid like 18 years old is like, yeah, here's my chance. I'm gonna go get on the news. This guy, it's kind of similar thing. He looks like he's about 20. He's just floating down a raft in the middle of the street in New York, smoking something, blowing plumes of something. The thunder's <laughs> yeah. going off. None of it makes sense. It's completely irrational, which means it's probably a young man who, yeah. who's just doing something stupid in the middle of a, uh, in a dangerous environment. Well, the one thing I will say is this. Um, he's in New York City, and I don't care if it just fell from the sky, if it fell on New York City, that water is not clean. So uh, nope. I, I don't know if you want to be out there in your swim trunks swimming in that water. Nope. Nope. That's like that water rose from the East River. Over That's right. Something. You should avoid. I, I, I avoid puddles in New York City. I'm not <laughs> right. I'm not about to climb in the middle of a street that just turned into a river. Right. Yeah, that that I just, you know. He might, you know, get his pinky toe amputated or something, you know, because he got you gotta the other thing, a video. You watch a video like that and you think to yourself, that has a smell. You can kind of yeah, smell it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the funny thing, too, is uh, 
you know, all the roaches Oof. and the rats and how resilient <laughs> they are. I mean, swimming I'm along. sure that they're they're <laughs> floating and swimming. You know, rats can swim. So I'm sure they're floating and swimming in that same water. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not like you can avoid them like you, you know, you kind of walk around the trash bin in New York. Uh, you can't avoid them when they're when they're floating by you and you're on a float. So personally, I wouldn't do it, but more power to that guy for having that kind of New York City bravery. I guess, and, you know, that lack of, you know, care. So, there is something kind of sad and fatalistic about it, though. You're like watching a video like this. You're like, is this the end of the country? It's like <laughs> some guy. Yeah, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe the whole the whole country is about to collapse due to global warming or something. And he's just floating down a city street. <laughs> Nothing better to do than self-medicate, waiting for the rats to consume him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, hell, that's why we're here to save the nation. I don't know if we can save that guy. I'm not going to that water, but you know, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna need one of those uh, those helicopters flown by the Taliban, and, and oh. they'll drop a <laughs> they'll drop a net for him. Speaking of that, let's get into uh, to what, some of this gear that we left behind. Uh, to the Taliban. There's a a video here I'm going to show you of uh, some of the equipment left behind by the United States of America now in the hands of the Taliban. We've seen some estimates of around $80 billion in military equipment. It's pretty well-outfitted military now, the enemy we've had for 20 years. Take a look. All right, so we did leave a lot of gear behind, Jason. Not looking good. I mean, look, this is our enemy for 20 years. You know, obviously, uh, the expectation was that we were leaving it in the hands of the Afghan security forces, but that collapsed in hours, and now the Taliban has it all. Well, you know, I, I think that there are a couple of ways to look at this. Um, and I don't think, honestly, it's the worst thing in the world. Now, let me, let me explain why. Number one, um, I think that it, it is true, certainly at Kabul Airport. Uh, excuse me, um, Karzai Airport, I think. Yeah, same um, place, but yes, yeah. Yes. Um, that a lot of the uh, equipment was destroyed or made inoperable before people could actually get, you know, get their hands on it. And the Taliban was allegedly very frustrated by the fact that the U.S. left them a bunch of junk to get rid of rather than, you know, a lot of equipment. Right. What so when we, deployed, did- when we deployed those 6,000 troops back to Kabul with gear, we disabled the gear on the way out the door. Right. You know, so, so, that, that, so those remnants that were in Kabul that were part of the rescue mission. Right. Um, not usable, apparently, by the Taliban. So what they do have, um, I think that can be damaging from what I've been reading, is the surveillance equipment um, that they can use against their own people. So they have surveillance equipment. They have night vision goggles. They have body armor. Yeah. They have a couple of small arms. Um, as you far as the, the helicopters and things like that, the, mm-hmm. the United States has frozen $9 billion uh, of Afghan money. So what does that mean? Good luck trying to fuel up a helicopter, you know, or, or you know, get a lot of ammunition or get a, a, a lot of things that are necessary 
in order to operate a, you know, a military operation. And at the same time, your economy's collapsing. Mm. I, I really am not really worried about that. Now, the other side of this is also, even though the Taliban has been our enemy for 20 years, there's, as uh, Alex Pleats has said, um, there's probably going to be some sort of diplomatic relationship with the Taliban. And right now we have a greater enemy that attacked us um, in that region, and that's ISK. So with, with ISIS Khorasan there and the Taliban being the force that has to deal with them, them having a few weapons doesn't really uh, bother me the way it would have, say, 20 years ago or, or even 10 years ago. Um, they're in charge. It's their country. And I think unless um, some of the opposition that's in the north of the country, you know, uh, we'll see how their fight works. Um, I still think the United States should stay out of it. But, you know, we'll see. That is the one part of the country that hasn't been taken by the Taliban. Taliban says that they're trying to negotiate. Um, but the Taliban also refuses to give them a seat in government. So that's a conflict for them to deal with. But the fight against ISK, you know, them having a few small arms um, and some night vision goggles and some body armor when they're trying to take out, which is pro what is probably a bigger terror threat because, you know, the Taliban wants to get legitimacy on an international stage. And I don't, really don't think that they are a threat to the United States. They actually want to work with the United States. They want to get that money unfrozen. Um, I'm not so concerned with them having, uh, you know, a couple of M4s and some night vision goggles, um, especially if it's going to help them in a fight against an actual terror threat that wants to create a, a global caliphate. So I think that there's a couple of ways to look at it. Um, I think one of the things that needs to be pointed out, you know, there are a lot of people who are being disingenuous, particularly on the right, talking about $83 billion of equipment going to the Taliban. And according to the AP and all the fact checkers around, that number is severely inflated. Um, most of that has been made inoperable. So uh, it's not just the equipment that's been brought back. Much of the equipment is inoperable, but you know it's pretty hard to make some night vision goggles inoperable. Uh, you're gonna be able to operate those. So they have those, they have the body armor, they have the small arms, um, and if it helps them in a fight against a real serious global terror threat, I think I can live with it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the verdict is still out, the extent to which ta the Taliban will continue to be a global terror threat. Um, but at the moment, you're right, there's all sorts of incentives that are hard to detect and hard to, you know, just, you know, right now we're kind of hoping things come true and we're hoping that our leverage is useful. Uh, that leverage was diminished this week when uh, we saw that the Taliban is now saying that they have a deal with China. Uh, that deal with China may mean a lot of resources coming from that part of the world, right? So, so whatever economic leverage we may have over the Taliban is diminished by our adversaries having economic uh, tie-ins with them as well. The um, the equipment, you know, it's like you're right. Over at Kabul, we disabled. You know, we had military take some hammers to some of that stuff. Uh, and disabled um, a lot of the things that were left behind, specifically at Kabul. But there were gigantic caches of weapons, some of which you just described, uh, that are now in the possession of the Taliban that very much um, uh, changed the, the playing field in terms of if we were to get into another armed conflict that looked like the one that we had with the Taliban over the last 20 years, suddenly they're strapped up and they've got a lot of stuff 
that really changes the game. You talk to these veterans, they would say that having those night vision goggles and the ability to operate at night meant that the United States had a tactical advantage that just far exceeded anything that the Taliban could do uh, with centuries old equipment, basically, uh, and that that we owned the night. That changes when you've got uh, both night vision goggles and special sights and the ability to, um, you know, inflict a lot well, of damage. Well, now, here's my my hope is that we will never get into a ground conflict over Afghanistan ever again. I hope so, um, too. That, that but, doesn't make I, I'm not sure a scenario where I see that as as necessary or possible, particularly with drone technology and with and with uh, air support that we can give. Uh, you know, I, I hope, honestly, with the conflict that's going on now that we stay out of it. Um, yes. I know that the people in the right, uh, excuse me, uh, in the north of the country want U.S. support. But I think we're out of this war. We don't want to get into wars. We we don't want to support, um, you know, war efforts. I think, you know, right. if if they want to take back, you know, or fight for a, a part of the of the country and keep that separate from the Taliban, do that. If they want to try later on, gain yep. steam and take over the rest of the country, do that. But I, I think the U.S. should stay out of those conflicts. You know, and, and let- I agree with you. But my my point, I guess the two two things immediately leap to mind about the idea that we would engage them in armed conflict again. One is that we still have uh, hundreds. You know, the administration says around a hundred of Americans still in the country. So right now is a very fraught moment that right. could demand a military intervention in order to rescue Americans. That's just that's just possible. We know that, especially in it the midst possible. of a hostage crisis. I mean, yeah. think about. The Iranian hostage crisis was 66 Americans. Now we're looking at hundreds of Americans, thousands of uh, permanent residents of the United States. Those are green card holders. And then hundreds, tens of thousands of, of other Afghan allies that we were trying to get out of the country, but haven't. And many of those are interpreters. So there's, you know, there's some real drama still on the ground in Afghanistan that could require a military invent- intervention. We don't want that to happen. But yeah. that's, the, that's the hand that's, that, uh, that we have right now. Yeah, the I, other, I think, oh, go go ahead. Ahead. I'm sorry. Just the other scenario that I was referring to is the whole reason we went to Afghanistan in particular is because it, it was a staging ground for the terror attack that was conducted on 9-11. Um, so if another attack like that were to happen, and you and I discussed already the likeliness of something like that, but if another attack were to happen like that on the homeland, what happens if we do deploy our military rightly with broad bipartisan support, which I would expect would probably happen, to punish those who, d- who attacked us? Um, now we'd be facing a much better armed force, a dramatically better armed force in the in the Taliban. So, yeah, um, I, I get you're you're trying to detect the silver linings here. Like, OK, yeah. so long as they have the weapons, maybe they can use it to defeat people like ISIS-K. And hopefully that, you know, redounds to the benefit of the United States. I, I understand the logic there. I'm just saying that this is a dramatic, unforced error. Yeah, I, I, I see. The thing is, I I disagree on on how dramatic this is number one you are not going to beat the u.s military if they don't want to take over your country which we tried in vietnam we tried in afghanistan and failed but if you are have committed something against you know the the u.s particularly on the homeland i think that's really unlikely but it is you know it is possible um and the taliban their role in it because what we all know is that those people were ethnic Saudis, including bin Laden himself. They were not 
Afghans. They were not members of the Taliban. The Taliban provided them safe haven. Um, and again, Pakistan was kind of involved in giving them safe haven as well. Um, but we don't want a conflict with Pakistan. So if we don't want a con conflict with Pakistan, we shouldn't want one with Afghanistan either. Now, what I would say is with the technology, so much has changed over the last 20 years that even if there were, God mm -hmm. forbid, an attack on the U.S. homeland, I think that we would not necessarily need to go in there with ground troops. We could literally drone, you know, them to into oblivion. U.S., you know, air support and China will not get involved. I promise you. The the little bit of, you know, M4s they have. Try shooting, you know, at, at U.S. air uh, power with M4s. That's right. not going to do anything. You know what I mean? I think the world has changed and the way we conduct wars has changed. And again, I think the Taliban, our leverage over the Taliban, with the fact that the financial institutions that we can pretty much shut down, um, mm -hmm. I understand you're saying they, they may get support from, the, from Russia, they may get support from China, our adversaries. And, um, and continued support from the Pakistanis. And continued support from the Pakistanis. Um, I, I, I do understand that that will mitigate some of the damage, but I think the, you know, even with, if they want to be an African country, you know, essentially in terms of the amount of money they have to, to do these projects, uh, and to modernize their country and, and to feed their people and to have all of the things that it takes to, to, um, to, you know, function, um okay but if they're smart you know they want the support of europe they want the support of the united states and they don't necessarily have to shun the support of russia or china they can be every you know i think that the new taliban I, and if they're smart if they're stupid you know then they'll they'll alienate some parts of the world but they can continue to get their the support of the turks they could continue to get, you know, they, I think they want to be the new smiling Taliban, you know, right now, you know, they, they want to be the Disney version of the old Taliban. They're not <laughs> going to protect some, you know, Saudi that comes in and commits an act of terror and say, well, you're Muslim. You can, you can stay here. No, you know what I mean? I, I really, they don't want to be Iran, you know, where uh, you're isolated from the rest of the Middle East and the rest of that part of the world. That's what they're trying to avoid. So. And they know their their country's economy, even when, you know, people are talking about this China support, we'll see how that works out. But their country's economy is about to literally collapse. The United States holds the purse strings. I think we have significant leverage um, in order to get people out of the country, particularly people. It gets a little more difficult, like, like, like Alex Pletsis was pointing out. And if you haven't gotten a chance to watch that episode, I fully recommend it. It was, you know, really, really interesting information. I think it gets a lot more difficult for people who look like ethnic Afghans. Um, I, I think that even, even if they have a green card and things like that, I think it gets more difficult. But for, uh, you know, people who uh, are Americans and look like, you know, don't look ethnically the same as some of the... Um, 
you know, as, as uh, people in that region, um, I really don't think that the Taliban is going to mess with them. You know, I, I, I think the Taliban, once commercial flights get up or whatever they're going to do, they're going to let those people out. They want, you know, they want this country to be an Afghan country for, you know, and only have diplomatic relations with the United States. They don't want a U.S. presence there. And I think that would be the smart move. I'm assuming the, Taliban, the new Taliban, from what they are saying publicly, is, is smart. Now, some what Alex Pleats just pointed out is some idiot Taliban, you know, foot soldier doing something stupid. That's possible, you know. Um, but the leadership, I think they want legitimacy. What a disaster of a country. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, a, but it always has been complete this, disaster of a country. You, and you I see agree the video. You see the video of the uh, the news presenter who had his studio overtaken by the Taliban, and he was telling everybody that the new government is great. And <laughs> yeah, the they were standing the, behind him the with two the Taliban guys are standing behind him with their their AKs and one, I mean I don't know what they had in their hands at the time. And the one Taliban dude was cross eyed. He's like standing right behind him. That was yeah, the yeah. that was the most unbelievable video I've ever. Seen. I mean, that, yeah, I one that. of many. That was that was remarkable um amazing and uh they're Jason, getting rid of the women journalists too okay, yeah you know they're executing people now you know but i maybe maybe there is some segment of it the new and improved disneyfied uh, version of the taliban you know you know because yeah. even disney's actually kind of comfortable with slavery to be honest you know you saw <laughs> what they what they did in china um jason nichols uh it's always good to talk to you i uh i really appreciate this uh friday show and uh you're right. The Alex Plates' conversation from earlier this week um, was so informative. If you haven't Absolutely. listened to it, uh, please check in on that interview. Uh, and you can you'll you wouldn't miss it if you're subscribed. Subscribe to Vincent Jason Save the Nation wherever you find a podcast, and make sure to like and subscribe and comment and share on the Daily Caller YouTube page. Um, that's the way that we can overtake the algorithms and save the whole. That's how, that's how we really save the nation. Let's right, break through. Exactly, Jason Nichols. Thank you. Hey, always, Vince. Much love, brother.